Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Jeff Kerno. Jeff is a bit of a dichotomy. He's a world-class orchestral player with the Philadelphia Orchestra. He's recorded 15 releases as a member of the internationally acclaimed Empire Brass. But Jeff is also a regularly published satirical cartoonist and a video creator with an absurd sense of humor. Trust me, this hang will be a classic. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Okay, welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am here with Jeff Kerno. Jeff, what's shaking, buddy? Everything and nothing. My, my martini uh, shaker was shaking. <laughs> Not stirred. Not stirred. <laughs> yeah, so, so Jeff has got his martini, and you know, since uh, Jeff is actually my first legitimate trumpet player, although those have been, <laughs> been illegitimate, uh, I wow. have to be, be a little more high class, so I have some Covatier. A little cognac here. You notice know, mine's not in a martini glass because all my mar- <laughs> martini glasses are destroyed. They're, <laughs> they're gone. I'll never buy another one again. Yeah, yeah, I know, man. It's like, you know, I think it's a racket. You know, it's like all these, you have to have this. Uh, just give me a paper cup. I'm, I'm right. Good. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, um, yeah, it's a Jeff. You are not too far from me. Uh, you're right. in the Philly area. Uh, you're originally from X. Uh, Easton. 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 I always get Easton and Exton confused. So, um, yeah, the birth uh, or Larry Holmes was from Easton. I don't know if he was born there, but he was, uh, you know, the famous, the boxer. Yeah. For those yeah. of you who don't remember, it, that's Easton's claim to fame is Larry Holmes. And you. And <laughs> I wish, but no. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure you, after a few of the gigs, you've probably felt like you've been punched in the face a few times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, sh- I should have taken some lessons with Larry. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That'll strengthen your chops. And uh, for those of you uh, who aren't aware, uh, this T-shirt I'm wearing is also in honor of Jeff. Yeah. Wonderful <laughs> creations. Um, so... Uh, yeah, what's what? What is actually the story behind this? I, uh, uh, Madonna, a friend of mine, uh, Madonna Teat, who goes by another name now. Uh, she, she's married. I kind of can't remember it. It's slipping my mind. But she has um, uh, an Etsy shop, and she does a, a great. She's a former student. She does a great deal of printing, and. Uh, she is, was a terrific trumpet player. She still plays a little bit, but she and her husband have a have a, a, a printing shop, and they do mostly sports paraphernalia and things things like that. But she called me up and said, "Hey, you know, I can print T-shirts. You want to do something?" <laughs> so I said, "Okay." And I came up with a bunch of weird designs that have to do with brass. I've got a a French horn that's I turned into a motorcycle, and there's another guy of a tuba ride with holding a tuba riding a buffalo. And, and it was all under Wild West Brass Works. I figured I would introduce the line that way. And then if it took off, I would drop the title and just do more strange T-shirts. And it never really took off. I sold a few, but it was it, it was fun. It was kind of fun putting this stuff together at all, you know, with Photoshop and everything. 
I've got all the designs here, but you know, uh, well, this, I, I appreciate this, you wearing it. That's, hey, not that's a problem. Great. Not a problem. I was going to have my blackjack mouthpiece lined up here. That's as another well. one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, for those of you who who are not familiar with your work, um, you are an accomplished trumpet player. Uh, the work that you've done over the years, uh, your work with the Empire Brass, obviously. Um, what you did, what? Uh, how many? How many CDs? I think it's 16. 16 with them. Uh, Principal Dallas. Um, and now with uh, Philadelphia, uh, back home. That's, right. that's always good. But uh, I mean, so you're, you're very accomplished in the world of, uh, of classical trumpet literature as a performer, as a uh, educator, clinician. Um, and besides all that, um, and I say this lovingly, you're a bit of a goofball. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, for people, yeah, but people who don't who don't know your work, um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because you always think about um, the classical world. You know, you, you think about uh, players being so serious uh, and uptight sometimes, uh, and you seem to be the antithesis of that. Uh, your your love for uh, art, uh, particularly cartooning, uh, your, uh, your videos, some of the videos you put out, uh, were just hysterical. Oh, thank uh, you. It's, it's, uh, it's the trumpet version of PDQ Bach, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, so, I mean, how, how do you manage that, uh, that balance of, you know, being the serious musician and being the, uh, the comedian, practical joker, uh, you know, off the wall kind of guy that you are? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was on stage the other day with, with the orchestra, oh, not the other day, quite some time ago. And my music director is up there and he's coaching the strings on something. And he says, did you see Jeff's last cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> in front of the whole orchestra. And he turns, he said, that was really funny. It was something about a, a conductor talking to this the strings and that was the first time that i knew that it crossed that boundary <laughs> that it went that my music director was actually looking at my cartoons and i thought oh, oh my goodness now i've stepped into another circle here and i really got to be careful and i've all i said to him they're never about you <laughs> no matter what i do it's never about you but it is a, it is an odd balance it's uh because classical music I mean, it is such a serious art form, and I've spent years studying uh, serious classical music trumpet, and that's what makes it so easy to poke fun at. <laughs> and uh, because it's uh, it's so serious, and NPR and I have this relationship, which is really great, where that's what I do. I, they post all these serious things about what's happening in the classical musical in the classical music world, and the artists, and then all of a sudden, boom, they hit the audience with something that kind of takes it to another place. And I dig that. I think that's really cool that as classical musicians, we should be able to laugh at ourselves. We should be able to laugh at, at uh, the seriousness in a way and, and how seriously uh, it's perceived. And so it, it's become easier because it, at first it was a little awkward to 
be sitting in this orchestra, a world-class orchestra with these terrific musicians. And then the next thing you know, I'm putting up cartoons about trombone players. But, but I, you know, I come to work and they all like it. They all think, yeah, this is, that's, that's really funny. So it, I've gotten used to it and I kind of dig it. It's a good balance. It's, it's nice to be thinking that way yeah. about my job. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that's lacking in the world uh, today anyway, is our ability to laugh at ourselves. Exactly. You know, and I've, I've always thought that comedians uh, or anyone that's, that, that's in uh, comic and even like the stuff you do, the cartoons you do are just I mean, they're, they're great. Um, but it's that ability to look at things and see the absurdity in things i think that that people that are that are interested in in humor and that are good at humor uh, are some of the best uh people in terms of social commentary there you have to be very observant to do that and you know i, I uh, followed your work uh you know the, the stuff you've done with M for npr and it's you know it's that wonderful balance of of the headiness of the topic with the the absurdity of it so and it's uh, tricky it, it cartooning is very tricky uh, because it, I think it affects people more than an article. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I did political, a little bit of polit political cartooning for the Berkshire Eagle when I was with the Empire Brass. That's how long this goes back. This was in you know, the mid-80s and uh, 90s, and I was sending cartoons in. And uh, I was talking to the editor, because I'm always working things out with an editor. Thank God the editor's there. I owe everything to my editor, especially all my spelling mistakes and things that I'll, you know, grammatical errors. But he said, you know, people will see a cartoon first and read it and then turn the page because it's so quick. And, and, and it, it hits home and you can hit home so quickly with a cartoon in very few words, whereas a lot of people will swipe left or scroll up if they see an article that's like several paragraphs long. So uh, you have to be careful. You have to know exactly how to deliver it and, and to make sure that you're, you're hitting the mark exactly. Because if you go a little off mark, people will tear you apart or be offended or it's arguable. And there always has to be real truth to what you're doing and everything. And I try to shoot for that with the classical music cartoons, the trumpet cartoons, or any car, any political cartoon. I don't do many, but I do a few. Well, there's plenty of fodder right now if you're doing political cartoons. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> what can you say? It's, uh, it, yeah, it's crazy. But, I mean, when you, are you talking, as you're talking about this idea of being able to hit the mark, um, you know, as a, as a classical player, um, yeah, the, I think a lot of people have a misconception about uh, classical music in that it's just the repetition of someone else's piece and you're just you're basically regurgitating the music as opposed to actually uh, trying to breathe life into it, uh, particularly as a soloist. Um, how do you approach you know, taking a, a well-known piece of literature and then playing it with your own unique interpretation? Yeah, that's, that's the one thing that drives me crazy about classical music. <laughs> it really is. Now, you're a jazz player, and I love that. I love the fact that you can take someone's changes and do your own thing. Write your own tune over top of somebody's changes. 
could take Beethoven 9, but you can't do anything except what Beethoven wrote. You can't do anything except what Mahler wrote. And uh, in some ways, uh, it is stifling. And, I, you know, the more I do it, the more it becomes, well, uh, what is my role here? And you have to be the orchestral player if you're going to sit there. I have to sit there. I've got to play my part. And the guy in charge has a stick on the podium. And the only way it works the best is when you follow what the guy on the podium is doing. But this is all his idea. This is, uh, this is the, the conductor's idea of the piece. I mean, he'll follow the score. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, follow the score more precisely than others, but it's kind of his interpretation of it. So you have to be a part of a team. And that's the thing about being in an orchestra that's so important. You have to be a team player. You have to support what's happening in the mind of the conductor and Mahler or Beethoven or the composer that you're, that you're playing. So as I do it, it gets a little more frustrating because, gee, you know, I've played this piece so many times and with so many different conductors. I kind of like what this conductor did and I like what this conductor did and I'm combining all these things in my mind. The longer you do it, you suddenly realize now I have my own opinion about how this should go. And that the longer you do it, when you first get there, it's like, yeah, let's go. And now I sit there and think to myself, gee, you know, I kind of liked the Mahler when we did it, you know, three years ago, or I kind of liked uh, the Stravinsky uh, like we did it five years ago. It's, you have these, all, all these performances and these interpretations locked up in here. And when you put them all together, now you have your own. And, uh, and sometimes it, you know, you disagree with what's going on, but the main focus is be a team player, right? Be a team player for that moment. And that's the way it works the best. And, uh, and, and I'm all about that, but you're right in that, does it stifle creativity? No, but at the same time, you're thinking, gee, you know, maybe I should conduct. <laughs> that was going to be I'll my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if you're going to think that way, then get, grab a stick and get on the podium and deal with all the difficulties because conducting is a massively, incredibly crazy difficult thing to do. I mean, I, I respect every conductor for getting up there on the podium and having to do what they do because it's really tough. It's really tough. And yeah. the better the orchestra, the tougher it is. All right, because you have people who are all very talented and very gifted and very opinionated. And exactly. Yeah, it's like any level of management. You know, the, the better the team you're working with, uh, you know, I was going to say it'd be like the Eagles, but eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> careful <laughs> uh so you know with your your family you grew up in a musical family um and doing the research on the backstory i didn't realize uh the extent of the the influence of music in your life so uh you know, yeah a lot of shoes to fill that's for sure. Yeah, and a lot of uh, hand-hammered brass horns to uh, 
Yes. Yeah. You did your research. Wow. That's yeah. yeah that's that's so, true. Yeah. So I want to share a little bit with uh, with folks about about how you came to be who you are as a musician. My grandfather was a trumpet player. In fact, I, there's, there's a trumpet, which I have. My father just passed uh, two Octobers ago. And uh, he had the original, this, this, this hand-hammered hammered bell trumpet from, and what I mean by hand-hammered is it's got little, looks like it's got tiny little dents in it. It's really beautiful. It's an old ambassador. And it's probably from, I want to say the 40s, mid-40s, because my grandfather played it. And he played it on all these, you know, jazz gigs, and and he was a a big band player, and but he was also a banker. He kind of did that on the side, and then my father, his sister, and uh, his brother, my uncle, all went into music. They all went to Westchester State University. Uh, my dad was a, became a music teacher. He was a, a singer, and also a trumpet player a very good trumpet player. And my aunt was played euphonium. She sang, she was also a music educator. And my uncle played with Stan Kenton. He was a trombone player in the Kenton band and then produced uh, a couple albums for creative world and is now has his own publishing company, the Sierra publishing company and is doing all of Maynard's charts. In fact, he called me like a few years ago and said, I'm having lunch with Maynard. <laughs> Want to come? I'm in New York City, and I was in Dallas at the time, and I had to do something <laughs> like some piece, some Mozart Requiem or something like that. It's like, oh my God, wow, what a great thing to have my uncle having lunch with Maynard, and I can't make it. Yeah. But, uh, and he's doing all the docs charts also. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in my family. So I was surrounded with it. And, uh, for my whole life. It's basically, uh, I was surrounded by musicians. I was surrounded by gigs. My dad would take me to gigs um, by LPs, Miles Davis, for everything from Miles Davis to the Philadelphia Brass Ensemble and Chicago Symphony. Uh, You know, my dad had all of it and he did everything. He played salsa gigs. He played classical music gigs. He was a true freelancer. So he had uh, an incredible array of uh, albums. He had an incredible array of books, which I have now. They're, I mean, all the method books from Double High C in 57 Weeks to the Maggio system. I was exposed to all of this. And that's all I wanted to do. I, I mean, I, from the time I was, you know, I can, all I can, I can remember it's, I had the trumpet in my hand and that's what I was going to do. I was going to be um, a trumpet player. And I focused my, my everything on that. And, and I had a family and uh, a lineage, a family lineage that supported that completely, except <laughs> for the fact that I was going into classical music. Oh. It's not good. <laughs> and my great grandmother said to my father, can't we talk him out of that? <laughs> can't we? She was a big Kenton fan. Can't uh-huh. we kind of get him out of the classical music thing? But that's, that was my departure because everybody was kind of involved with jazz. Really. My father went a little outside the bounds and I was completely outside the bounds. So that's basically the story. That's the backstory of how I got uh, into the classical music thing. 
Yeah, well, that's that's kind of funny because it's like you know you think about you, know, a lot of other people. It's the opposite thing, you know, where it's like everybody is is a classical musician, and then you know the the child wants to play rock and roll or something like that. Yeah, you're going to rebel by playing Ravel. So. Yeah, no, it's true. And I would be downstairs in the basement playing through you know Mahler excerpts and all those international excerpt books, and I'd be. And my father, he could relate to it, and then he couldn't relate to it. He's like, yeah, this is kind of good. So he called, you know, uh, Johnny Thyssen, who's another trumpet player. I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny. He was a teacher at Glassboro State, which is now Rowan University. And they went to high school together. John's a terrific trumpet player. And he said, I got to take this kid somewhere where, you know, he can – immerse himself in the classical study. And he said, call Seymour Rosenfeld, who was second trumpet in the Philly Orchestra at the time. And that's when I started going down to see Seymour. It was around, I was 16 years old. It was like 11th grade. My last two years of high school, I spent going down to Philly every two weeks studying with Seymour. And uh, that was it. It was like, oh, this is, you know, heaven for me. And dad was the one to, you know, take me back and forth. So uh, he was very supportive, of course. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of people, I get calls from people who say, hey, my kid's into classical music, and I have no idea what this is all about. I mean, I'm a business major, and I work for this firm, and my kid, I don't get it. And uh, I tell them, uh, your kid doesn't choose music. Music chooses your kid. And if your kid is in the basement practicing two or three hours a night and is in love with music, there's not much you can do about it. And you kind of have to support that and they have to see it out. And uh, it's difficult for them, but for me, it was a different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, did you feel a lot of pressure to, to go into music? No, I, I, and I think my parents would have been okay with, with whatever I did. And I did a lot of other things. I was acting in high school plays and I was doing art projects at the time when I was a kid. And I was interested in those kind of things also. But um, I caught fire around 15 and then I was obsessed. And uh, that's all I wanted to do. And I dumped everything into that. I don't know what it is about that. And I see that in some students where you get hyper-focused on music and um, it's doing more. It was doing more for me than just sitting there and working out, trying to be a musician. Something uh, in my brain was being very satisfied by sitting in a basement and practicing through things, you know, as many times as I possibly could to get it just right. And uh, I was fortunate to find that out early. Some people find it out later. But when you're a teenager and, and that becomes your focus, all of a sudden uh, that drive kicks in and that's all you want to do. And they were, very, they were cool with it. Okay, I'm going to get out of your way. Just go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's cool because, you know, the, the process that you have to go through to get good, regardless of what it is, whether it's, uh, you know, trumpet or basketball or, you know, anything, um, there's an art and a science to it. I call it the science of success. And it's, it's the, um, the desire to practice because if, if you don't have that drive and that motivation, as soon as you hit the wall, which you're going to hit, which you have to hit, you can't 
you can't not push yourself. You can't put yourself in those. If you don't put yourself in those positions where things suck, you're never going to get good. And it's that ability and that desire to to go through that. I know for myself, it's like I love the challenge. You know, I live for the challenge. Let me turn so, this around a second. Did you start as a classical trained player or did you immediately go into jazz? Um, I started out as just, I mean, just like everybody else, just playing in high school band and I never was particularly uh, motivated to be a classical player. Um, you know, it was just most basic band literature and then I kind of got hit by the, the jazz bug and then the, you know, the commercial music bug. So, uh, yeah, my, 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 like you, I, I, I'm a bit of a, of a, of a comic, but, uh, what makes people laugh is usually my classical playing. So <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> You should hear some of my practice sessions. They're hilarious. <laughs> well, you know, I can't remember who it was that I was. Uh, I, I was listening to an interview with someone. It was an LA guy, and uh, it it might have been John Lewis, but I mean, it was somebody who who's a fairly heavy hitter in LA, and they were talking about practicing. You know, practicing at home, and uh, yeah, they they would walk out and you know people would you know their neighbors would see them and and kind of look at them funny and finally one day someone said uh you know well, where are you going he goes well i'm on my way to a, to a gig i've got a gig and it's like oh it's nice that you finally got a job playing your trumpet <laughs> you know because it was you know the the yeah you know, the practice is just you know it, it sounds like ass most of the time this <laughs> is true it's so true my family endures it <laughs> and i feel horrible about it sometimes but I just did this, uh, I just posted this thing is I really wanted to do this. And I, you know, uh, having all this time off is kind of a blessing. I know it's a horrible thing, but I, I get away from the orchestral thing and I can go back and do things that I really kind of want to do before I can't play anymore. <laughs> and, and I'm getting to that age where it's like, God, time's running out. So I grabbed my wife's Bach, uh, book of Bach sonatas and partitas and I said I want to do this partita and I worked on this for I must have been a month <laughs> and I just posted it but what my wife was going through while I was learning this because <laughs> she would come in you know occasionally and say you know uh, we don't really do it like that as violinists. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we don't have to think of it as triplets here and and sextuplets here and you know and so she's being tortured by this she finally came in and said look when are you going to record this because I don't know if I can take this. Thing. So it is it's like, you know, for those of us, those family members and people outside the practice room doors who have to endure our, you know, our practice sessions, I feel very, you know, I'm indebted to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and actually I, I had that video on the other day. I was, uh, uh, walking down the steps in my house and I was listening to the video and my wife goes, Oh my God, who's that trumpet player? He's amazing. I said, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing him. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah. to get there, it was not amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, my, for me, uh, my, the thing that, that I have done the most in, uh, or have devoted so much of my time in the past uh, three decades uh, has been study of martial arts. 
And wow. yeah, that's, that's my, that's actually my biggest claim to fame. No uh, kidding. That's but, awesome. um, one of my teachers, uh, had a, a saying that she would always use, which was, uh, uh, ugly practice, beautiful performance. No kidding. Yeah, we, we actually, in Chinese, they say ugly, ugly gong fu. Like, it's like, oh, yeah. It's the thing, like, if, if some, it, and her explain, explanation of it was that if, you know, you're, you're practicing and people are standing here looking at it and going, oh, that's beautiful, then you're not practicing. You know, you, you want to practice, you want to make mistakes, you want to fall, you want to make, you know, just look ugly while you're doing it because that's the that's the hard work that goes in. And I think, Sometimes the pressure that's put on us, I, I know when I was when I was uh, studying music uh, way back when in the dark ages, uh, that there's sometimes a, a, the mental pressure that we put on ourselves in the practice room um, of trying not to sound bad because you're you're afraid of what other people are going to think about your your practice. Uh, and I know that's that's a, that that bothers so many people. I mean, is that something that you uh, had to deal with, uh, at, you know, growing up around musicians and, and in the processes of studying? Is it something that you dealt with? And if you did, how did you, how did you deal with that? It, you know, yes and no. I mean, when I remember getting to college and I was at Temple University and I'd go into these stuffy little practice rooms and there was a window on the door. <laughs> And I'd be sitting there hacking through something and people would walk by, you know, who's, who's that guy in there? And I, it, it, I, it started to affect me a little bit because when I was a kid, it was much my parents and my sister on the, you know, upstairs. I was in the basement. I didn't really think about that. And all of a sudden you're in a practice room and it's like, wow, is everything a performance now? I, it's just crazy because now people are walking outside this room and, and listening to what I'm doing. And it, in some ways, it, the perception that, yes, people are going to have to listen to this became real at that point, whereas is, wow, I'm going to have to perform this at some point. Uh, and, then care, and then practicing became more careful. It became, uh, okay, how am I doing this so I'm getting better faster at it instead of just flailing at it? Because flailing at it, is kind of not really getting better if you're just sitting there banging through it and banging through it and banging through it and then you get out there i i would find that performing it didn't make it any better learning how to practice efficiently uh, uh, became really important in college and that kind of helped that people are outside listening and i started thinking well how are they thinking about the way i'm practicing and there is a method to practicing which gets you better faster. And that takes a long time to work out, a long time to figure out, uh, and a lot of experimentation because it's a little different for everybody. So uh, that taught me a great deal about how to practice efficiently and making sure that I understand that everything it is going to be a performance. The end game is you have to go out there the curtain goes up and you've got to play it the best you possibly can. You've got to walk on to the stage and audition the best you possibly can. How do you get there from being, being playing Petrushka, the ballerina's dance, absolutely horribly to playing it expertly when you get on the audition stage? 
And uh, that's a whole science. And I will say from my experience teaching that it is different for everyone. Everyone, the, the path goes in one way and comes out another. And you can reach a student through different, different ways of speaking to them about practicing. But the end result has to be the same. You have to get to the stage and you've got to be able to play proficiently. And not only proficiently, but you've got to pull the heartstrings of the people in the audience because that's really what it's all about. How music affects you emotionally. And, and so at the end of the day, everybody's got an iPad with the, their favorite music on it because of the way it makes them feel. That's really the end game. You've got to get out there. You've got to play something that makes the audience feel like, wow, that kind of changed my life a little bit in the way I think about playing, you know, how, how the trumpet sounds or how this piece is perceived. Uh, so that's kind of a roundabout way <laughs> to answer your question that in a way it's helpful if there's mm -hmm. someone outside listening and you're thinking about how you're practicing. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes, it makes absolute sense. Um, it, you know, I, I think more so in the world of classical music, um, you know, there's the, uh, the emphasis on on technical proficiency. I mean, every trumpet player really needs to be technically proficient, but um, you know the the ability to to manage the horn in um, in the ways that you need to as a classical musician. Um, sometimes it seems like uh, there's so much emphasis on technique that the musicality can be lost in some in some players uh, condition where it becomes more about being a virtual virtuoso than about being a performer or or someone who's like you're saying trying to tug at the heartstrings of the audience as opposed to making them go oh wow they're you know they're, they're such a, a tremendous talent um how do you 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 find that that balance for yourself of of uh you know making sure that that you're on top of the game as a technician, but not losing sight of the emotional portion of, of the communication that you're trying to make. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. It's, like I said, it's, it's the priority. It's, it's uh, like I listen to a lot of Coltrane because I really dig the way he approaches everything he does from a musical standpoint, from, uh, you know, I can really feel what he's thinking. Uh, Chet Baker, it's the same. Miles, uh, I listen to a lot of jazz. I listen to Frank Sinatra because of the theatrical way that he's got to sell a song. He's got to look at the words, look at the emotional intent and make sure that the audience feels a love song or feels a swing or feels a happy, you know, carefree kind of tune. Because at the end of the day, your priority has to be what message am I sending to the audience? And if it's just uh, a MIDI file, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. If it's just this kind of thing that comes across where you're playing the notes, it's not good enough. 
if I may say so. It's just not, it, it, uh, you're not going to, like I said, everybody's got an iPad with their favorite music on it because of the way it makes you feel. And that's uh, really the most important thing. The top, the priority number one is how you're going to make a listener feel. Even if there are mistakes, <clears throat> I've never heard Miles play a perfect trumpet solo, but I love everything that he does. Even the mistakes seem to fit into what he's trying to convey emotionally to, to, to an audience, to a listener. Uh, uh, and as a classical musician, you can get caught in that because A, the parts are just ridiculous. Uh, the, the trumpet parts that Ravel has written or Stravinsky has written or Mahler has written are sometimes uh, border on unplayable and are written by a lot of pianists that don't know anything about the trumpet. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> right. So you're, you're kind of caught with the, the technical, you're bending yourself into a pretzel trying to figure out how to make these, these things work from a technical standpoint, which they have to. And then the challenge is, to carry that over. So if you've got a line, uh, a trumpet line, that's very much like a clarinet line, mm -hmm. and you're sitting in an orchestra where we have, you know, Ricardo Morales, one of the world's greatest clarinet players, <laughs> plays a clarinet line and it sounds fantastic. And then the clarinet line is handed back to the trumpet section and I gotta make it sound just as good. <laughs> that's the challenge mm -hmm. because he's, it's very, it's very natural for him because it's written for the clarinet and now this is written for the clarinet and passed to the trumpet. And now I have to make it sound kind of like a clarinet player and with the same musical inflection. So there's a lot of challenges there. And, uh, but like I said, you have to take those challenges and, and funnel them into the musical intent. And it, it is difficult because you, you, it's a little like target shooting when you're playing classical music for the trumpet. It's got to be precise. Everything you do is, is based on precision because you have to do it three, four times. You have to do four shows of it, and it's got to be great every single show. It's got to be uh, as close to perfection as possible. Then you become like a gymnast in the Olympics where you're learning a routine and you have to go out there and do it. Now the gymnast has to also put emotion into that routine and make it look fluid like a dance, but also has, you have to make sure, the gymnast has to make sure they meet all the criteria that you have to for, to get the gold medal. And it's kind of the same when you're playing. I like to think of it that way when I'm playing classical music. So there's a lot of repetition in, in practice because you wanna make sure that the muscle memory thing is happening when you get out there, much like what Olympic athletes do. They do it for years over and over and over again. So that you, when you, you know, when the, when you're on that spot, when you've got your five minutes, it's going to happen. You have the best chance of it happening. It's never going to be perfect, but it's, mm, it's a little bit what I hate about classical music because there isn't that flexibility that you have in jazz where you hear dizzy one night, maybe it's not so good. The next night it's on fire. And there's a lot of freedom there in how you're, ex you're expressing yourself. And with classical music, you have the composer, what the composer wrote out in front of you. 
you take the phrase phrases as they've been done a thousand times before you add what you can to it of your own style but you have to make sure that it precisely fits in with everything else that's going on on stage it is beautiful when it works out it is an incredible when you get a hundred people to be able to paint this picture that is just unbelievable what the composer had in their mind but it is restrictive in in that way but it demands a lot of precise practice it it, de it demands a lot of there isn't a lot of freedom there but i kind of dig it it's kind of part of my personality this discipline of being able to to tackle that mm -hmm. and it keeps you you know in in this kind of shape and focus that maybe jazz doesn't so it's you know, I keep going back between classical music and jazz because uh, there are there are similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Right. And it's very frustrating on 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 both ends, I would imagine. You yeah. would know the jazz end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I But, you know, I have to say that your analogy of, you know, playing classical music is uh, being similar to a, a gymnast. For some reason now, I can't get this picture out of my head of you sitting there playing Mahler, wearing one of those uh, women's gymnastics outfits and the chalk all over your, your legs. There's a cartoon. There's a cartoon right there. There's a cartoon, right? Okay. Right. <laughs> Give me credit on that one. No, it's true. And it's all muscle memory and it's doing it over and over and over again. I, I practiced the ballerina dance from Petrushka a lot because you can lose that. And that's one of the most difficult excerpts for me, but in, in a way it, it, it keeps honing that skill of being able to try to, uh, to nail that every single time as if you're taking an audition, but then on top of that, put the music, the musical aspects into it, make it sing a little bit, do something a little different than someone else has in order to relate to the audience and make sure that they get the emotion that's happening at that moment. Right. Right. Well, you know, with you, you've, you've been in an interesting situation uh, with um, you it, with Dallas. You were the principal trumpet, correct? Yeah. And uh, with Phil, uh, you're your, the associate principal. Right. Um, and when you were th with Empire, you were uh, you're playing the, the you're the, the role of the second trumpet or the associate. Right. Um, so, I mean, I know from like from a. Uh, from like a jazz standpoint, you know, the difference between being a lead or playing, you know, split, you know, the split lead or whatever. Um, it, the difference between going from the person who is setting the tone, basically setting the, the, the feel in, the, in that principal position to the person who's supporting that. Um, a lot of people have trouble making that transition. And a lot of people, uh, not just making the transition, but they they don't like to be in a supporting role, whereas other people love being in that, that position. Uh, where do you find yourself? Uh, do, you, do you enjoy being uh, in the, the associate position more than the principal position? And, and how do you make the switch? I'm glad you brought this up because this is a very interesting question. And because uh, I like doing all of it. It's, I mean, I really mean that in mm -hmm. that uh, I wanted to be a great second trumpet player in the Empire Brass to Rolf. And it was truly a second trumpet player position because I didn't get to do a lot of solos, but I had to tie Rolf Smedvig's sound and his, uh, uh, you know, his talent as an amazing soloist in with the rest of the band. 
I was the bridge between he and the French horn and then the trombone and the tuba. So the supporting role taught me so much and I, I liked playing it a lot because uh, of being able to, to move as a group. With the four of us would move underneath Rolf if he was doing, and a lot of our arrangements, if you listen to our arrangements, a lot of them are trumpet on the top, four people underneath. Right. And I learned a lot about arranging, but also about how to make that work and how to move as a group. When I had to move with, move with the French horn or blend with the French horn, I had to change the way my mouth position. I had to change the way I, I heard things. And then all of a sudden I had to jump into playing trumpet and being really next to Rolf, especially on the Baroque things. So it was a real challenge having all of a sudden jump from Rolf's position in his first trumpet position down to the French horn position. But I really loved all of that, the supporting role and being able to jump in the lead role, which is uh, when I moved to Dallas, I was kind of sitting in the principal role, which was fine. But I found myself like, gee, you know, <laughs> I wish the section was moving a little more like this <laughs> underneath me. I would make things work a little bit better. And, it, and the supporting role is such an important part of an ensemble. Yeah. And I always think a great principal trumpet player has a great second trumpet player and a third player and a fourth trumpet player next to him that makes him cheer. He'd sound great. And uh, so I like being able to do all of it. And when I'm sitting there, when I play lead, the great thing about playing in Philly is that I get to play principal and I get to play the supporting role uh, in, in the associate role that I'm in. I'll jump down to the third part. Sometime I'm in the second part. I, I kind of move around all over the place. Sometimes I'm in the fourth part, depending on what we're doing. But uh, I get to do both. And and it is it is fun. I a few years ago I did the National Brass Ensemble, and Dave and I took off and to Chicago and or California actually where we recorded. We also did a concert in Chicago, but I was the second trumpet role again, and I loved it. I thought it was so much fun to be there and support Dave and to be in this situation where I could move things around and be that person that's the bridge. Uh, I, I will admit I like playing principal. It's fun. It's fun for us from a solo standpoint, but since I can, I feel like I can do both. I like the, the flexibility of doing both. Some players can't. <laughs> yeah. Some players just don't feel comfortable being in the second chair or the third chair. I like the principal chair. That's where I work best. Good. That's where you should be. And they're great players. Uh, other players, if you're a good second player or a third player, my God, we need you in the business. And it, it you know, it, it's a great, it's a great way to make an ensemble sound great if you have great second and third players and fourth players. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's like you know, if we're going back to another sports analogy. It's it's why uh, it's so important that you have that team. That's why I think sometimes all star teams really are horrible <laughs> because. Yeah, like you, you think about what happened with the uh, the U.S. basketball team when you know the the dream team, uh, you know, 
exactly. You, you've got to be able to take, uh, you know, whatever your role is, you need to, to fill that role. And it's not always being in the spotlight. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your contribution is any less than anyone's. In many ways, it's actually more because you're that foundation for stuff. So I'll tell you that uh, one again, experience I had, I, one of the things I don't like doing is playing assistant. <laughs> I hope Dave's not watching, <laughs> I think. but I know I have to do it. And I appreciated an assistant on some pieces that I had to play where you sit there and you, and you, and the, the principal trumpet's able to get the mouthpiece off his face for the important stuff. And it's imp really an important role and an essential role and something that I, I need to do. And I was, uh, when I was a principal, like I said, it was, I was thankful to have an assistant, but it's not a lot of fun because you don't play a lot. It's very stressful because you sit there for sometimes half a movement and then have to come in and make sure you're ready to go mm -hmm. and take over for the principal. So it's very difficult, but there are times when, uh, when we've done Bruckner symphonies where I've assisted Dave, where I've had a great time just sitting there and being part of this massive sound on stage, when you hear everyone playing the role they're supposed to play. And, and when that happens, it's like either a, a great play or a great team, uh, a team that will go all the way to the Super Bowl or the or a finals or anybody. When you have a great team that works together, when you're done with a concert, it's an amazing experience where it's like, wow. That's a, something I can count on one hand or two hands, one of ten or five or ten experiences that I've had as a musician where when you're in a team setting and you play something that is when the audience just lights up and goes bananas at the end. And you know that that was one of the greatest performances that you've ever played of this piece that will ever be played of this piece. That's an amazing feeling. And you want to be, a, if you're into being a part of that and not into this, well, you know, I wasn't doing the solos. Uh, you know, that's, that's a great thing. That's, and that's really who I am. That's, you know, part of why when I leave the business, I want to make sure that I've had that experience, that I've been on a great team and been able to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of teams, I mean, you, you, you've done, um, extensive recording obviously we talked about earlier with the with the empire brass um you know your work with dallas your work with philly so you you've worked with uh, and you've you've worked with the the smaller ensembles you've worked with these full orchestras you've uh done some some little featured solo stuff as well um i know that you like to do it all but what do you feel is is the one thing that you really enjoy the most, the small setting, the solo or the, the orchestra? Oh, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Uh, because I've had, I've been fortunate enough to have great experiences with all the ensembles I've played with in every setting, uh, whether I'm sitting in the principal chair or not. Um, so that's almost an impossible question to answer. I think to sum that up, I, I'd say that uh, I get off on being on stage at, for us a real event when we do Mahler 8 and the orchestra is really in top form and we have a, 
it, it all kind of works because even with a great orchestra, there's a lot of luck involved and some things just don't go well or, or with any ensemble, it's like that. But when you're on stage and you walk off stage and think, wow, that's, like I said, that's, a, that's an incredible experience that moved me. And it doesn't happen much. It doesn't happen as often as you'd think. A lot of times it's just a job. That's really my favorite part. My favorite part of being, when I was, you know, with the Empire Brass, we've played a couple concerts in Tokyo, one in the Tonhalle in Switzerland. Um, we did one at Wigmore Hall. I have a few performances in my head, my memory, that were really, really incredible. And I wasn't playing any of the lead stuff, but it was about being on stage and being there and moving an audience and feeling like you've changed somebody by what you've done. You've, 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 you've really affected people. You've pulled on those heartstrings. You've, people are gonna walk out of the hall and all of a sudden have a different idea about music. That to me is, you know, is amazing. It, like I said, it doesn't happen often, but that's really, uh, those are my favorite moments. I can't say that it's, it's being a principal trumpeter or a second trumpeter in a quintet or in an orchestra or in a big brass ensemble. Uh, it's more about, wow, this is really going to work. This is really going to be great. And I'm really looking forward to this. And then doing the performance and having it work exactly the way you want it to. Yeah. This is like kind of a completely off subject kind of question. Yeah. I, I, I was uh, actually recently was interviewing uh, someone uh, about, uh, you know, doing productions and uh, in Vegas. And uh, I asked, you know, what was the, the weirdest production you've been a part of? Uh, you don't think about weird productions for orchestral players, but there's got to be one gig that sticks out in your head. It's like, man, that was just surreal. That was so bizarre. <laughs> I've played... <laughs> I've played a lot of really, really surreal gigs. I was a, I was a, a herald trumpet and then for the New York Renaissance Fair. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I was, when, you know, uh, me and a guy named Don Batchelder, who's a great trumpet player. He played with the New York City Ballet, but this is way back when we were both kind of struggling and just out of college. And I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it gets better as you get into, uh, uh, you know, uh, bigger gigs and better gigs. And, and I keep auditioning to try to get, you know, into different places and where I think things are gonna be a little more normal and then it, they're not. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say. It's, I've been in situations where, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're plunked down. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> it's just a, a very, it, it, it's, it's tricky here because say, say I, don't to, say I don't want to <laughs> implicate, implicate an ensemble, any particular ensemble, but I will say the funniest shows and the, and the most, mem some of the most memorable shows are the ones that go horribly wrong <laughs> where, you know, something doesn't work or, you know, like we did, we did a, 
uh, we recently uh, were up in Saratoga and the orchestra was going to play. Dave wasn't there and I had to play first on planets and Star Wars and it was going to be this extraterrestrial show. And we didn't realize <laughs> that they were going to show a movie during the planets. We had <laughs> we were going to play the okay. planets. And so we get out there and there's this gigantic screen up there and a beautiful big screen. It's one of the, the, the newest projection screens on the market, but in, but in order to cool it down, it makes this hum because there's fans. Right. So you're out there and we're ready to play and all of a sudden, <laughs> this thing goes on it. And, and a lot of times it's not in tune with what we're playing. <laughs> So you're, it's like, wow, we have to play with this. This is a Philadelphia Orchestra. And all right. of a sudden we got this. There was another, there was another kitty show we did with this gigantic dragon that they had that was breathing fire. <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> all the string players are afraid their violins are going to get on, you know, catch on fire from the heat that's coming out of this thing. And it, those things, uh, they're, they're funny moments. And they're, that's where the cartoons come from. Uh, but uh, they're frustrating at the time. But when you look back at him, you're able to laugh at it. You know. And, yeah. And, and it's fun. Yeah. It's you know, it's part of being a musician. You ha you've had this. Oh yeah. Everybody, everybody's got those stories. <laughs> they're gig stories. Yeah, they're, they're they're the things that keep you going sometimes. Um, and you know, everybody's got their favorite piece. You know, everybody's got the, the got that to go to. Um, I, in, in terms of classical repertoire, I, 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 I'm pretty limited. Uh, although my favorite piece is, uh, of course, Swinging Pendulum of Death, Drenched in Tears of the Afflicted. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you better explain that to your viewers in case they haven't <laughs> seen the video. <laughs> If if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, just uh, Google uh, Google Jeff, uh, and uh, he's got a wonderful video about the this this amazing piece that uh, I think every trumpet player should be forced to play. At oh least twice. my God! Right? <laughs> uh, it uh, what we see sometimes from from new music composers is, is hilarious. It's yeah. really unbelievable. Well, you know, that, that actually, when you were talking about that earlier about, uh, you know, so many of the parts are written basically by, you know, keyboard players, you know, piano players, composers, um, and they don't always take into account the nature of the instruments that they're writing for. You know, they have the sound in their head, but, uh, you know, yeah, I was just recently uh, contracted to, to do some, some horns for uh, a reggae uh, recording and the charts were done by a keyboard player and I'm looking at these charts and going oh wow look at this line of uh, of 16th notes uh, going up to F sharps um, oh, God. while I'm supposed to be playing on a Harmon mute uh, <laughs> right it's like you know this nice gentle you know kind of relaxed thing and I'm playing high F sharps on a Harmon mute like no you know it, it's just not going to work um but that that translation of what you hear uh, in your head and and what is coming out and what you're producing um, when you're practicing, do you have a really like 
firm concept of the sound that you're trying to uh, generate. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about the feeling you're trying to generate, but but kind of what's what's going through your head uh, in your your practice. Not and and if you want to see another video, uh, check out his uh, uh, pre-practice study video and make sure you have the bottle of scotch there as well. Uh, but you know, what is your approach to approaching a piece that you need to perform? A lot of times, if we get a new music piece, uh, because a lot of pieces I've known and I've, and I've been in business long enough to play the Mahler symphonies, and I've done all the Mahler symphonies, thankfully. I mean, a lot of people haven't. I've done all the Beethoven symphonies, the Shostakovich symphonies. There's, there's very few uh, pieces I haven't played in the, you know, the regular orchestral lit. When you get a new piece, I'll sometimes grab the score. One of the hardest pieces I've played recently was Wynton Marcellus's Blues Symphony. <laughs> and uh, it was a bear. It was real. I had to get the score and it's two scores. This guy wrote, uh, I, I'm a Wynton fan. I think he's in, you know, an amazing talent. And I'm holding two scores there, you know, in my hands that I've got to take apart because uh, Sometimes that's the way you have to approach a piece. You have to look at what's happening underneath, what you're playing with, uh, how you're supposed to interpret this by, am I over the strings? Am I with the winds? Am I with the trombones? Am I going to have to play this louder than I thought? Um, uh, is this a featured part of this particular passage? So I, I, a lot of times I'll get the score. A lot of times I listen. I really, I'll try to find a recording of the piece. If there isn't one, then the, the score is the best I can do. But there's a lot of recordings out there uh, that you can listen to to get a feel for exactly how you're going you're gonna to approach a piece and what's happening around you. We get music in our bins. I grab my folder. There's the first trumpet part or the third trumpet part. And I pull it out and it's just that part. And if you don't know what's happening around you, a lot of times you show up to the first rehearsal at a disadvantage and we don't have many rehearsals. We have maybe three rehearsals to put something yet together, sometimes two, especially if it's a concerto, there's very few rehearsals. So you have to know the piece, know where you fit in the piece and hit the ground running when you get there. And so I'll, I'll approach a piece in, in that way to study it out in front, especially if I don't know it. If I know the piece, sometimes I'll get my parts and I'll have notated, well, what you want to do here, this has to be really soft. If it's something I played 10 years ago, oh, this concerto, I can see I've written in the part in the Philadelphia Orchestra parts. Uh, make sure you use the black mute here. Make sure you use the red mute here. These kind of indications. Uh, it it's really comes down to study and being able to sit down and to look at it, to, to do it efficiently and as quickly as possible, because I'm in a situation that not a lot of people are in where we do a hundred some concerts a year. And like I said, you have to show up to the first rehearsal knowing it almost better than the, than the conductor. It's very stressful. It's, it's, it's a situation where you preparation is paramount. You have to be prepared when you get there. So uh, you work out a way to do that efficiently. You work out a way to, to, to do that effectively so that when you show up, you're in, 
in, uh, in the best shape possible, you know exactly how to approach the piece. And when the downbeat happens, you're playing like it's, you've played it your whole life. It's, yeah, it's stressful, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Well, sounds like it. Thank goodness you've got the uh, attitude for it. <laughs> well, it's uh, it, the, the challenge. I'm kind of a, a junkie on that. I mean, I look at something. If I have all this time off, I'm always looking at something that I've never done before. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing for me right now is to to keep that muscle because it is a muscle. The just being able to sit down and learn something. And a lot of times, if you have, if we have time off, we'll just pick out the etudes we already know to stay in shape. That's, you know, I'll just play through stuff, you know, etudes and excerpts and things that I already know. I'll just kind of stay in shape. And then when you get back to the job, you're thrown, something's thrown at you that you need to learn. And right. all of a sudden it's like, oh, I need to learn this. How do I do that? I can't remember. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm kind of, I kind of kind of keep that muscle. Yeah, well, that, that's great. And I think that's one of the, the downfalls that m most of us have as adults is that, you know, uh, that the average person after they get out of high school and the, or college and, and they get a job, uh, you know, you learn your job and then you're doing the same thing for 25, 30 years and you don't have to learn anything new. And it becomes very difficult to go through that learning process. So. Right. I was fortunate to be a member of the Empire Brass in which we had to come out with CDs where, as Rolf said, you got to jump through hoops again. You have to jump through big, you know, smaller hoops. You have to impress more than we did in the last CD. So, okay, what are we going to do now to make this more impressive? You have to one up yourself on every CD. So that, uh, I was in there for eight years and it was just like high intensity. Okay, now we have to do this piece. Now we have to do this orchestral rendition. Now we have to do Mozart and we've got to do it at this tempo. Okay, oh my God. And once you, but when you're done with it, you suddenly realize, look at what I've accomplished. Oh my. God, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm kind of into that. That's I'm kind of a junkie with how, how can I accomplish more before I, because I'm going to put this away at some point. I'm going to put the horn down and that's going to be it. And I want to make sure I've done everything I want to do before I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great attitude to have. All right. Well, we're going to make a little transition here. Uh, I have a, a portion of the show that I, I, uh, I call the speed studies after the oh Nagel, my God. Nagel speed studies. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> uh, so these are rapid fire questions, and uh, your job is to come up with the best answer in the least amount of time. I don't time these. I, I made that mistake once, and uh, yeah, <laughs> timing and trumpet it. players. <laughs> Let me preface this by saying I'm horrible at this. So. Okay. Good. Well, just take another sip of that martini. And <laughs> it's gone. That's just, that's like... uh, all right. Well. We're going to be all over the place on this, uh, so it's going to be some music, some not music. Uh, just be prepared. So here's, here's our first question. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? I can't answer this quickly. Uh, I would have to say Ralph Steadman, the artist Ralph Steadman. Okay. What is your favorite book? Uh, right. I, I am, 
I have to say, uh, I've got a book that's nothing but New York Times, all the, all the, are uh, the New Yorker cartoons, all the New Yorker cartoons in one book. I am just, I'm fixated on that book. I'd say that's my favorite book. Okay, cool. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Plan Nine from Outer Space. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking about that when you were talking about them showing a movie for the planets. I was going to ask him this Plan Nine from Outer Space. <laughs> I got to say, I mean, I know some people are into that movie, but I just <laughs> love that movie. Okay. If you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to do? Um, well, that's a good question. Act. I would have been an actor, an out of work actor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite drink? Martini. <laughs> With olives shaken and not stirred. All right. Uh, gin or vodka? Gin. I was a big vodka fan, but uh, now I'm a big gin fan. Okay. Um, you're going to have a dinner party, and you can invite any three living people. Who would it be? Uh, Ralph Steadman. <laughs> One. <laughs> Uh, Ricardo Muti, I find him very fascinating, and uh, it has to be living. Yes. Uh, oh, Barack Obama! <laughs> I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, you can have another dinner party, and uh, you can invite any three people from history. Would it be from, from history? Any dead people? Gustav Mahler. Um, Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, like, I like. I can't speak Italian. I don't know how I would speak to him. Uh, and uh, uh, oh, mm. Maurice Andre. <laughs> Okay. This is quick. Yeah. Uh, lacquer plated raw. Oh, now that's a, you know, I have a brass allergy. So <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, I would, uh, it's got to be plated. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite quote? Do what you feel, but keep both feet on the wheel. <laughs> Okay, um, this is an important question. Wit or wit out? Wit. Wit, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> if you don't understand that, yeah. uh, you Pat obviously- stakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what is your greatest fear? Of um, not doing everything uh, I wanna do while I'm here. Okay. You could only have one superpower. What would it be? To cure people of disease. Honest to God. That's what it would be. If you could start with stupidity, that would be a great one. <laughs> That's good. Now, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? aspect of trumpet playing that's most overrated. Um, 
Oh boy, that's a good that that's a good question. Most overrated. Wow. Uh, range. I would say range. Uh, most of the players I love uh, don't go out of the staff. <laughs> you know, Chet and Miles. And, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, so what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Oh, uh, phrasing, musicianship, um, you know, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be? Uh, I would say, don't take it so seriously. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Okay. Um, and while you're there, you're gonna give yourself a piece of advice about life. Oh boy. Don't take it so seriously. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, if we could go forward in time, um, you know, thinking about uh, as you wind down your career uh, and you're looking back on, on all that you've done, what, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want, want your contribution to life to look like? Uh, uh, you know, I, it's, yeah, that's a, that's a crazy question. Yeah. Cause um, we just lost Ryan Anthony, who was an, uh, an incredible trumpet talent, but also just an incredibly courageous human being who was struggling with cancer. Trumpet, for those of you who don't know who Ryan Anthony is struggling with cancer and for 10 years and turned this struggle into uh, a triumph by creating Cancer Blows, which is this organization that uh, concerts and uh, sponsoring concerts and just raising money for cancer awareness and, and just to fight cancer. And uh, I, I, I look at something like that and I think of what, a, what an incredible achievement that was where now that he's gone, that's here forever and that was, he turned that around. Uh, for me, when I look at, I, I mean, I'd love to, to turn things around somehow that way, to emulate that kind of, uh, uh, kind of effort. Uh, I, I, I try to do that a little bit in my cartoons. I, I try to, 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 to lighten things up. I would, I would like to do everything I, I want to do, but I do want to make a difference. And honestly, uh, I haven't figured out what that is yet. <laughs> I just know that I'm moving forward. And at some point, I want to turn this around and make this uh, something that will benefit everyone, that, that, that other trumpet players, other musicians, uh, you know, People that are at a disadvantage, uh, you know, it, it's you and I are in, in kind of the same situation where, I mean, you get to a, a certain age. I don't know how old you are, but you get to a certain age where you're like, well, what is what is this my story going to be? What is it? And it changes. First, the story is I want to get a job. I want to be the greatest trumpet player ever. And then it goes from that to 
I want to be a great dad. I want to make sure that my kids, you know, get to college and that I do everything for them. And then it goes from that to what have I really done that it's going to change the lives of people? What is it going to make people look at things differently? And that's where I am right now, trying to figure out how I can make, how I can and, and can be a citizen of this whole global community and in my small part, change things, change things for the better and make people look at life differently uh, or, or trumpet playing differently or whatever it is. So I, I got to say, I haven't really discovered that yet. I'm working on it. Yeah, well, there's still time, so keep at it. Keep practicing. I will. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if people want to get in contact with you, see what you're up to, check out the things you have to offer, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, there's, I have Colonel Cartoons Facebook page, which uh, is everything about classical music cartoons. I'm thinking about starting a Kerno Cartoons political page, but I got to be able to deal with all the <laughs> backlash from <laughs> yeah. that, which I'm not sure I want to deal with yet. Uh, also, um, that's about it. I think I don't have, I'm, I'm kind of slow on the social media thing. I have an Instagram account at Kerno Cartoons also, and my regular Facebook page where I'll, I'll post some things. So uh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm slowly climbing on board the you know, the social media thing. Uh, hopefully I'll get on that soon. Yeah, well, eh, you're probably better off not doing that. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. <laughs> and hopefully uh, people will be able to come and catch a performance of the... Yes. Orchestra. Philadelphia Orchestra. When we get back to the Kimmel, uh, I know we're going to be doing some broadcasts. We're trying to work out some broadcasts via the internet and, and figure out how to do that. And, and this, you know, COVID crisis, but, uh, I appreciate this. This is awesome that, uh, I was able to come on with you oh, and this has been a lot of fun. Oh, this has been great for me. And, and I'm looking forward to the day I can get down to, uh, Philly and you and I can have, uh, a nice one wit. Oh yeah. Right. With <laughs> whiz. We've got to have some whiz. Absolutely. Got to. <laughs> so, uh, so thanks. Thanks so much for for uh, being part of this, Jeff. And thank you. Uh, for those of you who joined us today, thank you so much for listening. And as always, peace and slide grease. We're out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound. And I'll see you at the next hang.